As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast following a very exciting race at Detroit, which is something that's very enjoyable to say. JR Hildebrand's with me, he's fired up his Macintosh from 1970, whatever <laughs> spec that thing is. How are you doing, JR? Just throwing me under the bus right away, man. Um, I'm good. The uh, My computer finally got fired up. You know, if you guys just paid me a little more for this, I might be able to afford a new one. Uh, I'm on a racing driver's salary, so you know. um, moving on quickly. How was your uh, how was your how was your drive back from from Indy? It was good, man. Yeah, it was good. We we just cruised on back. We took uh, for anybody who's into road tripping in the U.S., we took I-80, which is sort of the northern route uh, through Iowa, Illinois, Iowa nebraska instead of sort of back through kansas basically just for something a little a little different a little different flavor but um yeah enjoyable enjoyable cruise back with with the wife and uh yeah back here in colorado what's your um how, how do you feel about detroit as a as a track now we can kind of reflect on it a little bit because it's 30 years since the first race at, at belle isle um Obviously, it's not been on the calendar every single year, but it's been around for a long time now. And this will be its its last race as Detroit kind of switches back to a, a new downtown track, similar to to where F1's run in the past. So what do you kind of make of Belle Isle's legacy? Is it a track you've enjoyed having on the calendar and are you sad to see it go? I am a bit sad to see it go just because it's it's such a unique street circuit, even among the street circuits that IndyCar goes to. So from that perspective, it's it's been an interesting place to go for a number of years that always offers just a, a weird mix up of what happens. I mean, if you look at the the podiums at Detroit over the years, I feel like it's the most varied in terms of the teams that are good year to year, the drivers that really excel there. There's often a surprise podium finisher. Uh, this year we, we didn't really end up with one, but if you looked at the starting grid, certainly the, the podium was quite a surprise in terms of where, where everybody started to compare to where they ended. So just as a as a providing a bit of that it feels very detroitish when you're there it's kind of gritty but but cool and we've had some sort of epic moments at detroit over the years dating back to the cart days i mean i still think juan montoya's qualifying lap there in like i don't know whatever it was 99 or 2000 or something is still one of like the most epic open wheel you know, sensory experiences. It's like on par. It's it's kind of in the same category of the Senna Monaco, you know, early 90s kind of moments, just in terms of capturing really what kart racing was about during that time. And uh and so I'm sad to see it go, but but excited that the series is staying in Detroit and be interested to see how the how the new street circuit really ends up shape, shaping up because uh it's 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 certainly going to be different than this. So um, I'm excited for, for what's next as well. Moving along, we've seen a bit of a different willpower this year in 2020. Um, I was actually, I was really interested in his post-race interview that he spoke at some 
degree of, uh, I, I guess, with a little bit more, with a little bit more specificity about the idea that he felt like he was just really in the zone, and that that was something that you you hear bits and pieces of from from drivers. You hear about it from athletes. I can say, as a racer, it's something that you actually spend a lot of time on, like thinking about and trying to kind of understand for yourself, like what does that mean how do I get there? How do I operate in that sweet spot in terms of your mental attitude and, and sort of your mind body connection while you're in the car. So I was interested. It was interesting for me just to hear him bring that up, but in a more general sense, I know that you've paid attention to just sort of this shift in his attitude perspective that he's bringing to the table this year. It, it has, until this event, been really spectacular in terms of what we see, which is more what I'm used to. I think generally what IndyCar fans are used to seeing from willpower. But tell me, tell me a little bit about wh- what you think of the, the shift that he's made this year and, and how that uh, is sort of been shown across the season so far. It's funny, isn't it? Because you never really know what willpower you're going to get in a in an interview or, uh, you know, like a, well, anything to do with the media. You don't really know if you're going to get like kind of... Uh, insightful and in-depth power or kind of like I'm, I'm a bit bored of answering questions now dismissive power it's, <laughs> it's quite a few different types of willpower you'll get in a press conference ice bath willpower is my favorite from uh from Iowa a couple of years ago that was a, a good one where he turned up to the zoom the zoom conference in the in the height of COVID in an ice bath but yeah to, to to answer the question I feel like he's been a jigsaw this this year we've we've got the we've got the pieces race by race as opposed to starting with the the full picture. So at the start of the year, it was, there was a big, this big kind of thing about Will having this new mental approach and, and things, you know, massively changing. And that's really not been the case, to be honest, from, from, from what Will's kind of uh, revealed. He doesn't like to give too much away. That's the problem. He feels like he, you know, his mental approach and, and how he goes racing is, is something quite personal to him and something that I think he likes just, from a personal aspect just to keep to himself, but also he doesn't really want to give anything away to his opponents about how he's feeling or what he's thinking, you know, before races or, or into a season. So I feel like we're getting like three or four pieces of the jigsaw at, at each race. And we, we got another set at this one, obviously uh, a, a brilliant win with a, a strategy from, from 16th on the grid, another hallmark of what we've seen from him this season coming, you know, wh- whether he's qualified well or badly, he's been able to turn that into, into good results. You know, Barbara, I think he was the 18th or 19th on the grid there and, and turned that into fourth. Um, you know, the Indy 500, 15th, some people might think that was a, a terrible result, but given the performance of his car and the fact that he went to the back of the grid to come back and fight for for every point, he said, was the, the idea in that race to, you know, he didn't want to give anything up. Um, and I think that's the willpower we're seeing. But the the bit that, that I really liked from the, the post-race press conference was him talking about um, how he deals with bad results. And I think, you know, talking about this jigsaw again, I think we're getting, um, you know, it's not a change of mental approach from from Will, but we're just getting a, a more insightful, older willpower who has a lot of experience now and has been through a lot of these difficult situations and, and also someone who's been through so much bad luck and, and stuff outside of his control happening that really... To, to a point you just have to accept that things are, are outside of your control and I think that's a result of what we're getting and in the in the post-race press conference he said I'm not disappointed with bad results anymore that's one thing that has changed with me I really don't care I don't have to put anything more up on the board I could stop what I'm doing right now so I haven't got to that I haven't got that pressure I just don't care anymore I'm just enjoying it I'm I massively care about my craft and I want to do it absolutely properly but don't care for a bad result because it's just part of the game that's one thing that's changed for me because I've learned that it's not always fair. So it's this, it's this, I think this idea of, you know, there's no point trying to control what's out of outside of your control, basically. And we, he, he more than anyone has suffered some outrageous pieces of bad luck and Detroit was the perfect place for him to come back and win after last year. when obviously we had the, the red flag while he was leading last year and they couldn't cool the car down. They couldn't restart it. And he, and he lost that victory and, you know, props to Marcus Ericsson for what he was able to do in that race, holding off uh, a lot of hungry chargers behind. But I think we all agree that was Will's race to lose at that point, and he'd worked very hard at that point to to win that race. So, yeah, and a very difficult race for him to win, Joe, with the with the strategy because we basically had kind of like three strategies emerging there. Really, we had Alexander Rossi was the the prime superstar on the three stop, who obviously did. Uh, four laps I think on his first stint but had moved from 11th to 6th in that first stint and then 
uh, pitted and then drove past Joseph Newgarden, who started on pole uh, on merit on pace because the the reds dropped off so quickly. And then we had those who were doing the two stop, but we had those who started on the hard tire, um, who obviously had to make the decision whether they were going to use the reds in the middle of the race or at the end of the race. So we had power went went black black red finished on the reds. Um, that was obviously a, a big gamble when he he knew Alex was going to be coming at the end of the race. There was no uh, no doubt that was going to be the case. I guess I wanted to ask you, from just from a driver's perspective, when you've got, I think it's important to give the context here. Obviously, we had some some red flag strewn practice sessions where the drivers didn't really get any serious running on the reds, and you kind of know coming to Detroit that the reds aren't going to last very long. But there's no serious data or actual like intelligent insight that you can have going into the race at how long like you as a driver or a team are going to be able to keep those those reds alive so how difficult is it to to choose your starting strategy in that sense and also going off that do you just if if you get it wrong like Newgarden, Award, Pagano, those guys who who obviously did get it wrong through not really much fault of their own given what they were you know the data they were going off you know, do you, do you have to just chalk this up as an unlucky kind of situation where you've just been, you know, duped by something outside of your control again, I guess? I think so. I mean, you definitely got the... It was interesting just to see some different perspectives from the guys at the end of the race. Joseph was clearly... He was borderline, like, angry, I that thought. That was the about, I've seen him for a long time, I think. Yeah. You know, pretty curt, and I think just, just annoyed, basically, that... They did. There was nothing that, that nothing that they could have done. Basically, like they made their bed and they slept in it, and that was just, you know, that was the best they were going to get out of that day. And Pato was a little bit more, uh, you know, he took he clearly had a bit more of the optimist's view about just being stuck on the strategy and and not really having any options. Uh, I think you know for Joseph at this point in the season, coming I think coming off of a a, a less than great. Indy 500 also I'm sure just those guys are kind of in different places in terms of their previous event the biggest event of the year being a letdown for one and and still a strong finish for the other and their championship positions are are kind of in different places you can imagine for the two crew there's a bit more urgency to be able to make good on these kinds of situations when they do qualify on pole and uh, and so it's more more of a frustration uh than it is than it is any anything else but when you're in that position, there's nothing else. There's no other way to look at it beyond just, okay, this just didn't work out for us. And I think particularly frustrating, I imagine, for Joseph, just because what they did last year that ended up not working out for them was ultimately what worked for the for the winner of the race and willpower. Um, you know, the only the only thing, the other thing that's tricky about it, like part of what what makes it frustrating for those guys is when you're starting up front just because there's such a high risk of losing 10 spots if you are losing a bunch of spots and therefore a lot of track position if you're not on reds at the beginning of the race just for the actual race start and those first couple of laps like you saw even scott dixon and some of the guys that started on blacks they sort of tumbled down the order like three or four spots right away just because they can't can't quite get the red tire in and it's when everybody's bunched up. And so the you know, it's like to to guess ahead of time, to guess ahead of time that you're gonna fall off a lot on the reds, especially if you're using it in the first stint, that's a pretty good bet that I bet all of those teams were prepared for. Like they're prepared for Okay, I got to immediately go into tire save mode. This is not going to be easy. Like the teams, the teams know enough about the red tire to know that that because it also didn't change much from last year. And this is you know, it's like not a lot is going on here that's that's different from what they might have anticipated, like coming into the event, regardless of how, of the red flags and whatever during practice sessions. But that. Um, you know, you're you're also sitting there thinking like, okay, as long as we get through that first stint, if at least if you're comparing yourselves against the the Dixon and Polo going to Reds in the second stint or the Willpower going to Reds in the third stint, if a yellow comes out at any point, you're pretty solid if you've at least 
gone long enough on the reds at the beginning that you can get off and close up whatever track position you've lost and then go black black to the end like there's hope for you to have that you know turn itself around just like it went against joseph last year if that had happened at any point in the second half of the race they benefit from it but like the only way another way to put it is the only way that will power wins that race is if he's able to go as long as possible totally extend build up a gap on the two black stints and then have a huge gap to bleed off to the end of the race on reds rossi was the bogey in all of that that kind of showed if you just straight up have the pace you can three stop this if you time that just right and you find just the right gap for your first stint on blacks. I mean, all of that had all of that also had to go exactly to plan for the 27 crew for that to work out. So in essence, of those four, the four strategies, basically the red, black, 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 red, black, 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 red, and then the the three stop. Um you know, among the lot of them, the one that the handful of guys up at the front started on by starting on reds just ended up, unfortunately for them, basically being being the one that lost out, even though it was the one that reduced your exposure to yellows and all that kind of stuff the most, which is frankly like that's why in addition to the idea that you are at risk for losing a lot of start up spots at the very start of the race that you do that and you can't really blame them for it like. You know, the first first car that started on that didn't start on that strategy was like P9, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you got to just live with it. And and if you're one of the other if you're among the other group, like you're a little bit lucky that just nothing that a typical Detroit race didn't happen because, you know, that's that at the end of the day was what saved them. Well, I was going to say the. I think six or seven of the last 10 races have had a caution in the first 10 laps at Detroit. So I guess that that potentially could have hosed Rossi's strategy uh, if that early caution had come after he pitted. So I guess what I'm getting at is I think in motorsport, we have this correlation with, um, you know, the, the only good decision is the winning decision, basically, which is right to a certain extent. But what I think it's important to say is, if you're watching IndyCar, obviously the strategy is so varied and sometimes you've just got to make sensible decisions at the start of a race, which sometimes they're just not going to work out. Like there's nothing you can do about it. And that's what happened to, to Newgarden and, and O'Ward. They were making sensible decisions based on all the data they had, but unfortunately a weird set of circumstances pops up and that's what makes IndyCar so interesting sometimes. Yeah, I think just to add to that, on the flip side, it's also just worth recognizing that Rossi, Dixon, Power... Polo, all of those guys that we watched kind of on these heroic runs through the field, that all started because of the fact that they were in a position where it was not high risk for their first stint to be on blacks or or in Rossi's case to jump ship like they I'm sure they had just decided at the beginning of the race, regardless of how his start went like it was just a bonus. I don't know this, but it seemed like. And if, if you're in a position that you know that everybody's going to go off on reds and like there's a high probability that there are going to be cars that are going to be like either terrible at the end of that first stint or because of that bailing off of being on reds in some quasi like in the middle of the first stint and so three stopping after they've already started to run a bunch of slow laps on the reds. You're, you know, I guess the the point is that every one of those drivers that went through the everybody, you know, all three of the guys that finished ahead of Joseph and Pato as the first two guys on the standard start up front, start on reds, go two stops strategy. It was very low risk for all of those drivers to to take an alternative view of their strategy, and so that that I think is also. It's not like they got. It's not like Joseph and Pato and like the two and the five crews got out masterminded here somehow it was basically just that for where for where everybody was at they all actually played their most favorable card sort of in terms of the the likely chances of how the race worked out and it just ended up such that no cautions flew and so it was a little better 
for the guys that really had pace that didn't start on reds. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I guess we've kind of in a roundabout way in discussing the strategy has kind of addressed a lot of the drivers, but what is to go back to Alexander Rossi? Obviously it's been a, a huge week for him with his Aaron McLaren SP deal for 2023 being confirmed. I think a lot of people may be linking that to his performance at the at the weekend, which in my opinion is not, is I don't want to call it nonsense because everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but I feel like Rossi's had this deal in his pocket for a while now and it's not like just because it's been announced, he's suddenly had this massive breakthrough where he can suddenly go and drive a car faster like that. I don't really believe that that's a, a thing personally. But what what did you make of, I, I guess, we, we it's well, for context, it's been so long since he's really been in contention to, to win a race like that. And I guess the more important thing is what you mentioned earlier, like he was on a tear. You know, that, that the, the strategy that he ran, wasn't a gimme for being second in the race. Like he made that strategy work by being as fast as he was. And we've not really seen that from him since probably like 2019 spec Rossi, really considering how quick he was. I know he had some good runs in sort of the end of, of 2020 where there were some podiums and some, some, some positivity there, but I don't, I don't remember those races as times where I thought, Oh, like the, like this is an absolutely unbelievable drive from Alexander Rossi. Like it felt like good drives to podiums that were sensible, but not, not like 29 spec, um, you know, dominating at places like Long Beach Rossi. Whereas, you know, Colton's been the, I know Colton's not been quite as good at Detroit as some of the, some of the other road courses that we've been at, but he has been the standout street course driver, Andretti, and probably in the IndyCar series for the last two or three years. And, and Rossi really was, was the standout in this race. So, is it is it too soon to kind of talk about this in terms of Rossi maybe being back to his best and, and, and being towards that 2019 spec Rossi, do you think? Or do you think we need to see maybe a few more races and, and, and some more kind of performances like this before we jump on that kind of bandwagon? Well, the good thing is we've got Road America coming up this weekend. So that's a place that in 2019, we saw the spec of Alexander Rossi that you're talking about. And so we won't have to wait yeah. too long to really know, <laughs> to know what we've got. I, I guess I'm, I would say he's had, we need to see a little, obviously we need to see it a little bit more consistently to be able to know really what, what to expect for the rest of this season going into next season, all of that. The only thing I'll just, I'll say kind of to your earlier comment about his deal getting announced and all that kind of stuff. I totally agree that in situations like this, Either your car is good and you are making the most of it, or it's not, and it and you're not kind of like there. There is a there. There are some other things that play a role there. I would say that his his general demeanor did, however, to me seem a little bit more relaxed. Which, even though he's known that he's had this deal in some way, shape, or form for a period of time now, I think getting it announced does let you just take a deep breath also like when you know you've got it, it's because because in, in some respects it's not it's not all just about as a driver it's not all just about actually getting your deal done it's about getting it out in the open it's about you know not having to answer the nagging questions about it it's it's about maybe being there being people on your team if you're about to switch teams that kind of know but don't really know and that's there that causes a little bit of tension so I, I'm not chalking any of his performance up to that, but I do think that there's a, a, a notable, there was a notable or sort of a, a bit of a palpable difference just in terms of the ease with which he was chatting with people and, and even just his demeanor, like pre-race seemed very relaxed, which 
uh, is not kind of how he's looked as much like that. That struck me as being just a little different. Um, yeah, I guess I also I think that his performance altogether in this event was dictated by the fact that they were very confident from practice one that they had something that could run up at the front. They expected to run up the front. To your point, they could have been on any of these strategies if whether they had qualified well or not. If you know, he obviously started on reds, made his way up to sixth. It begs the question of like, could he have just run out on reds? And I think he would have ended up behind Newgarden and Pato because there's no reason to think that he would have been better than those guys over the course of the event. I think they managed their races as well as as well as probably you could, but. Uh, so it, he definitely gained an advantage by the strategy that they were on, but I, I think he just he just had a car and was dialed in with it enough over the course of the weekend that it was going to be a successful race for them one way or the other. And they they played that strategy. I mean, the the thing that's worth noting is there are always people that duck off on a three stop in this two st- in this big window two stop situation. And it just doesn't always pan out like you have to literally you have to have, you know, pull race winning capable pace throughout every phase of the race for every lap of the race to be able to make the three stop work in that situation. I mean, you're you're out of depth. You're instantly at a deficit of like 30 seconds that you're just responsible for making up on track with no yellows at that point. So that's the context that I think is is worth considering both in terms of that's how bad the reds were for that first stint for guys like Joseph and Pato that they they literally lost like 30 seconds <laughs> compared to Alexander it completely negated his pit stop but it that was also like dependent on Alex being able to come out in a place on track that he was able to immediately start ripping the lap time have and then have all of the cars in front of him bail off so he never really got stuck behind a group of cars as he was working his way back up to the front Uh, it was sort of the perfect storm of the strategy actually working in it to, to kind of make that happen but at the end of the day he was the only guy that did it that we ended up seeing up at the front and that was just because he was extracting the pace out of the car what do you think about his move to, I mean, maybe the more the more interesting thing here is like, it, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the rest of his year goes at to close out this deal at Andretti. N- not because it's his not 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 in the context of like, okay, everybody knows that he's moving on. Like, how is how are they going to work together for the rest of the year? But just because he's been because their results have been kind of all over the place. But he's going to Arrow McLaren. Like, what what do you think of? how that's going to work looking ahead. Well, I think if anything, the the Detroit weekend was just a reminder of what Alexander Rossi can do because, you know, I, I'm probably up there with the, the most skeptical uh, people when it comes to, to Rossi and whether he should be in a, a top seat at the moment, just based on the fact that I don't think two years of not winning races and not being you know, as good as you, you have been before, you know, I, I don't think that warrants the reward of, of being in a top team. But when, when you watch what he was able to do at the weekend, you know, you saw flashes of, of what we've seen Alexander Rossi do before. And it, it makes this two-year period all the more difficult to understand. Um, and that's one thing that might come out, JR, talking about, you know, towards the end of this year now, we might actually start to hear some more kind of in-depth uh, reasoning as to why this has been such a struggle for, for Rossi and Andretti. Because, you know, we've seen Colton, Colton her to hook the car up and, and be extremely successful at times. Even he struggled to be consistent over the course of a, a season like we're expecting to see from Rossi. But anyone just, you know, kind of teleporting back to, to 2019 for a minute or remember the, the, the hype around Rossi and, you know, whether he was going to go to Penske or Andretti and, and how big a deal that was. It felt like one of the biggest, you know, driver market stories we've had for a, a long time. And it's still, I still don't think we've had a bigger one since then, really. I, I think Pato... Pato's contract situation was obviously interesting and, and some of the words that were used there were, you know, made that, you know, quite um, attractive for the media, let's say. But the, the in terms of actual will he, won't he, what's he going to do situation, that, that Rossi to, to Penske or Andretti thing was was massive, I remember at the time. And uh, I just, I, I'm, I'm surprised that Aaron McLaren SP 
have, have, have gambled with Rossi. But at the same time, when you see events like Detroit, it's really hard to to argue that there isn't uh, still a top driver in there that they could potentially bring out. And we've seen Aaron McLaren SP do this with people. We've seen them, um, you know, struggle to bring people on. We've seen them with people like Pato bring them out of their shell and, and help them to to succeed. So it's going to be a really interesting situation to see how that goes. Uh, I'm interested to see how the balance of Rossi's personality fits in with kind of McLaren's sort of like branding, I guess you would say. I'm kind of interested to see how Rossi fits in because in many ways he's kind of like polar opposite to Pato Award. If you think about Pato kind of leading the branding strategy of McLaren in America and, and some of the stuff that he does, like whether it's baking guacamole in a rain delay at the Indy 500 or wearing that stupid orange inflatable suit that he was wearing in, in the rain um, <laughs> on, on the Saturday. Was that Legends Day, I think, or maybe Carb Day? Um, and and you just think um, some of the press conferences... I don't, know the- how, I don't know how excited Zach Brown would be if the two examples of what you just brought up about <laughs> McLaren's strategy... <laughs> Pato making quads. That's not that's not McLaren's strategy, but more their kind of <laughs> let's say Pato's vibe and and how he presents himself within that strategy. So it's 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 obviously aiming for the younger viewers, the TikTok type thing. Um, you know, is obviously a big part of what they're what they're doing. And, and Rossi doesn't strike me as someone who's going to fit into that in the same way that Pato might. But that's not to say that he's not a good fit and that he's not going to bring you know, a lot of benefit for McLaren and they're not going to be able to, you know, um, capitalize on, on what he brings to the table. Obviously he's very successful with his podcast. And uh, I think there's times where when you get Alexander sat down and, you know, have a proper interview with him, he's very insightful and, and, and takes things very seriously. I think just sometimes the way he comes across in these shorter interviews or, or when he's being door stopped after he's crashed or, or something bad's happened, obviously he's a bit you know, sort of, it can be a bit prickly and, and difficult to to approach in in those circumstances, which everyone knows. I'm not I'm not saying anything controversial or anything that people don't acknowledge. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how he how he, how he fits in there. It's still to me a, a really um, kind of weird deal, I, I want to say, but at the same time, uh, I'm not writing this deal off as something that isn't going to be successful because there's so much potential there, and uh, I think. I think I more than probably most people want to see Alexander do really well there because it's been so hard to watch the last two years based on the previous four years before that and have to write about him every week. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a slog, uh, to, to be honest. And when you know there's that driver in there and the potential is there and there's not really any, you know, really, you know, a proper good explanation for what's going on, it, it's, you know, it's quite, it's, it's quite hard to, to watch that and see that happening. So, for, for his benefit and for, for everybody else's, I really hope we see um, a strong Alexander Rossi emerge at Aaron McLaren SP because that's only going to be a good thing for, for IndyCar if that is the case. What do you think about Kyle Kirkwood's weekend? That was quite an interesting uh, roller coaster of um, emotions and feelings and pain, uh, I imagine. I guess to to give the context for anyone who wasn't aware of, of what happened with Kyle, he was fastest in the first practice session, which was... Uh, a bit of a promise from him that he made at the Indy 500 when he said the next time we get to a street course we're going to be you know I feel like we're going to be really strong and 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 that obviously delivered in practice and then I think uh, some sort of break issue in in the second practice which led to to a crash obviously had a massive swollen hand um, which didn't seem to be a problem in the IMSA GT class winning drive that he put together but uh, I imagine it was much more painful in the uh, in the IndyCar without the the power steering. And then in the race, he was running the same strategy as Will Power and had just changed onto the the soft tires for the last stint. Probably looking like between well, he came out in ninth and had to run twenty laps on the reds, so he was probably looking at a top fifteen, I, I guess. Um, but still a strong result for for the team. But uh, yeah, had that had that really unfortunate uh, clipping of the wall there, which uh, broke the left rear toe link, I think. Um, just after he'd come out for his stop, which was weird because he's been so good at outlaps this year, which is something I try to, to keep track of and I'm really interested in. So it was disappointing to see an area where he's been so strong for the first part of the season, um, you know, kind of hindering. But JR, you've, I guess, driven with injuries before and, and been around other drivers who've been injured and and had to, to race with injuries like that. I guess it's just such a distraction for you, isn't it? Even if you're not in you know, even if you're not in a severe amount of pain, it's still always in the back of your mind, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, I think in his, it, none of, 
the the accident at the end of the day in the race was his fault, but nothing up until that point was was really on him. Uh, yeah. So uh, unfortunate from that perspective as well. In in his just in in the context of his weekend, that it, it was a bummer that was not really on on his on his shoulders or 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 whatever. However you want to look at that, up until that point. I imagine that doing the it, it ended up not being great that he was doing the IMSA race probably just to have a little bit more rest. Obviously, it was nice for him to pick up the W there, but I think he would have probably rather just had a had a solid IndyCar race at the end of the weekend, given given the general kind of trajectory of his career. I think that he he basically showed in the first practice session exactly like you said that. Their stuffs the the AJ Foyt racing stuff is has been good and they ha- he has a good feel for it and he's good on the street circuits and when all of those things click they can perform at a really high level. Detroit's kind of one of those tracks also that yeah it's super physical it's there's there's a there's a bunch of reasons why it's different than other places but as it starts to grip up it's also a place that you just get a lot of I always liked it because you get a lot of reactivity from the car you're never really you're never guessing how the car is working because it's because it is reacting off the bumps and, and the different pavement seams and all that kind of stuff for the entire race. So you, you, you gain a pretty good sense of just what you're dealing with early on. And I think for Kyle being a rookie like that, that actually helps the learning curve accelerate a little bit because if you're willing to push the car really hard to fire the tire up, then you get a lot of like instant feedback from it, which is which obviously all of those things played well for him. Missed missed the entire second practice session. Didn't get a chance on reds. You go out on qualifying. You got like one or two laps to put it in. Can't quite get all of it. I'm sure at that point, if his hand his hand was bugging him enough that that's costing you a little bit. Uh, it's just costing you a little bit of focus or a little bit of strength or whatever, whatever it is, it's adding, it's kind of compounding the fact that you're trying to figure out the red tire all at once. It's just a little thing that's somewhere in your, it's influencing how you're driving the car somewhere, somehow by a little bit. And and a little bit was all it was going to take for them to transfer. They were like a 10th off of transferring through to the fast 12. So a, a disappointing situation there, but not altogether you know, uh, out of nowhere that they didn't, that they didn't make it through at that point. And then to your point during the race, yeah, there was kind of, I think there was, I was looking at the, the lap chart and kind of the final order at the end, there was pretty big gap between 12th and 13th. I feel like that's probably where Kyle would have slotted in assuming yep, that that's sort of where, you know, that, that they had a similar deg and fall off to, to everybody else. Um, but yeah, I think if we're just talking about Kyle in general here and the rest of the the rest of the year and going to Andretti next year, I've got really high hopes for him. I mean, I said earlier on the podcast that I feel like earlier in the year that I would I don't think it's crazy to think about him in the same context as Joseph Newgarden early in his career, like when he was at Sarah Fisher. And then moving to ECR, these are sort of like those first couple of years that you just, you never really saw, you know, he didn't win any races in his first, you know, season in his rookie year, but you know, he qualified off pole at Long Beach. You know, I remember there being a couple of those moments where you're just like, oh damn, like he doesn't have, not working with the same, you know, the, the engineering staff that he was working with at the time. Same as same as what Kyle's got now. They're definitely capable of punching above their weight, but you're not going to see it consistently week in and week out. Him, at, you know, they don't have the resources to compete at the same level every weekend as Ganassi and Penske and and whatever else. So it's going to be sort of flashes here and there, one way or the other. But just like with Joseph, I think this year we've already seen when those when it's when it's available to him to showcase that speed, he's done it, and so that's that that as a as a rookie in in the in a field that's this stacked i think is as important to kind of gauging what his what the next few years of his career may be in a better situation are going to look like and and i you know i i think he's i i definitely think he's the real deal you've for anybody that's listening to the pod jack i'll i'll do this on your behalf Jack has written recently about Kyle and got some interesting perspectives from different people that Kyle's worked with 
um, you know, both in the past and and I think going forward. So definitely go check that out because uh, he's he's going to be somebody who's around and he's going to be in the frame. When we look at Andretti, I'm just going to you know backtrack a little bit to talking about Alex here to wrap this thought, which is, I guess I I just just looking at the team and 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 I heard a little bit of kind of like rumblings about this just at Indy. But it just appears as a group that despite the fact that there's so many cars that are in the frame there, so you've got the four Andretti cars and then you've got the Meyer Shank cars, it just particularly for the end for the four Andretti cars, we'll call it like the three primary cars at Andretti being Grosjean, Alex, and Colton, like it just doesn't seem like and sometimes this happens. It's not it's not like it's this is not a totally obscure thing. This is this doesn't speak necessarily to an organizational issue or whatever, but it just doesn't seem like those three cars are operating from the same baseline every weekend necessarily. Like the the inconsistency of the performance of just those three cars weekend to weekend is seems greater than the other you know, then Penske or Ganassi in terms of their primary cars. Um, like I said, I heard a little bit about that just off the cuff from somebody uh, at Indy that there was, you know, there was a somewhat noticeable divergence in setups and and kind of just people going different ways with different stuff. Sometimes that just happens when you have drivers that are not driving the car the same way, you end up just people going down different paths. But on the same at the same time when you consider what the value should be of having multiple good drivers good engineers all under one roof that only really cements itself when you can benefit from the other guys and so if everybody's going down a different path and it's probably not that dramatic it's not like they're running completely different setups they're they're all in the same damper program they're all you know if, if there are general improvements that are being made to all of the cars or, or on some aspect of the way the setups are built, then everybody's benefiting from that. But uh, it just doesn't, it seems, it, it seems, I wouldn't shock me, I guess, to find out that it's a little bit disjointed and that that's maybe part of why we're not seeing as consistent a finish and consistent a performance from the Andretti squad. And so It'll be interesting to see Kirkwood go there with just a fresh, fresh perspective. Do we know that he is he going to be working with Jeremy Millis, like with the 27 team as it currently exists? Do we know that yet? I think the, they've not made any official announcement, but we we understand that the team is basically staying the same. So, yeah. yeah. Same so personnel. I think that'll it uh, that'll be sort of interesting to see, because I think it'll it'll also tell us a little bit about what's going on right now you know it'll be in hindsight at that point but maybe giving us a bit of insight into some of the struggles that 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 the 27 guys have had just as it is you know like are they feeling like they're a little bit on an island over there like they can't continue working with they've you've made it you've made a great point talking about the 500 just about the fact that they've seemed like they've taken some unnecessary risks We've definitely, and they were doing that back in 2019. We've seen Colton Herta do that since then, and it pays off sometimes, and it really doesn't in others. Net net, they tend to do it as a group, like when they're already really competitive. And so that does seem like, well, if you're going to be really competitive on a weekend anyway, like why would you take the additional risk just just to like bury everybody instead of? for sure being on the podium anyway, or, or, or most likely being in the podium anyway. Um, so there's, there's, there's a little, I think there, I guess I think when I look at Alexander from, I actually got to know him reasonably well as, as well, I guess, as I feel like you could get to know Alexander without really being tight, like with him in his sort of inner circle. Um, I got to know him reasonably well, at least as a racer in 2019, while he was having that good run and I developed a lot of respect for him. And in terms of the way that he looked at his craft, the way that he looked at racing, his openness to doing new things, kind of how he, how he looked at that. I mean, those types of things, the Alexander that 
that I felt like I got a little snapshot of that year when I look at what McLaren's doing and working with Zach and kind of that whole thing, just as a race car driver, I do think that he actually fits into that pretty well, as long as, as long as they can create an environment for him that he can thrive in just as a driver, you know? And then I think a lot of those other things, a lot of those other things will fall into place. So, um, that's not a, that's not a guarantee that that happens. I mean, I, I look on the, you know, I, I look at, I look at his situation going there, not being entirely different as like Daniel on the F1 team that it's sort of like, okay, this are, I, I wonder looking at the F1 team, like, are they creating an environment for Ricardo? That's like really designed for him to perform or is this, or is there just a super high expectation that he's going to come in and be the ass kicker that they saw at Red Bull a few years ago? And and like if he's not, then screw him kind of, you know, there's there's some of those things that like I just don't know about the internal dynamics of some of these teams. And I think Alexander in a in a similar scenario, like would definitely benefit from just like any driver would. But in this particular case would benefit from being given some time to figure out what he really needs and, and having them work towards that. I think if, if anybody gives him that, like we're like we saw this weekend and maybe we'll see for the rest of the year, uh, he's still got it in him. All right, Joe, I just wanted to rattle through some, some kind of the results of the race, really some of the interesting drives that maybe we can uh, pick up on, I guess. Well, to start with Grosjean really, because, um, he had another crash um, this time in, uh, obviously earlier in the in the weekend in qualifying. But um, you know that's a crash at uh, Detroit, the Indy Five Hundred, Long Beach, and St. Pete now. And I'm going to reel off a little stat for you that I think might surprise you, or it might not surprise you because you're JL Hildebrand and you know everything already. But anyway, in uh, 2021, after seven races, Roman had done four races of, of those because he was on the part-time on, on the part-time schedule. But if you work out points per race, he was on 22.25 points per race. And if you take his first seven races, which obviously includes the double points Indy 500, which gave him like the equivalent of a 16th place finish, um, even though he'd crashed out of the race, he's on uh, 20.14 points per race. So he's scoring less points per race at Andretti this season than he was in the first seven for, for Dale Coyne, which is a bit of a, a damning indictment of his starts the season, really, because I think I think both of us have been, um, you know, some of his biggest supporters in IndyCar so far and have defended uh, at times when others have uh, gone after him. I think we've defended him at, at times and, and this aggressive style he's got, but it's hard to kind of, uh, it's kind of hard, hard to argue at the moment with the, the results that he's getting and, and, and what's going on there, uh, especially given that stat that I've just reeled off. And, and I guess the other... One on a kind of negative footing was uh, Scotty McLaughlin making his third mistake in, in as many races, which was, I, I think, honestly, I think that ends any chance of him winning the championship now. I think he's too far back considering the strength and number of drivers that are that are now ahead of him. Um, you know, that being said, I think it's really important to maintain the the context of the situation that this is, you know, basically a second season in, a, in an open wheel car having you know, a couple of former Ford races in his absolute youth. And then, you know, he's jumped into one of the most competitive open wheel championships in the world now in IndyCar and won the first race and finished second in the second and adapted to ovals like a duck to water. So this is definitely not any sort of condemnation of Scott McLaughlin or or his future in IndyCar. But I guess you can speak about this, JR. Sometimes as a driver, you, you, you can get into these kind of holes where maybe it's not even necessarily like a trend um, that that anything that anything he's doing right now is a trend, but it's just the fact that he's made three three separate mistakes in, in in three consecutive races, and I guess that does impact your your kind of the, the way you think about things before a race. But I think it's pretty important for him to to stick some points on the board now. Yeah, I think for Scott, it's it's about if I was coaching Scott McLaughlin on like what to do or how to think <laughs> about this, but just just from. Uh, yeah, from an outsider's is. perspective, well, yeah, he's got the best guy to do it, you know, already. So, uh, you know, <laughs> this don't listen to me, Scott. But um, <laughs> you know, it's it's really about. I mean, I I have definitely had the experience. Uh, you know, obviously, 
through, I mean, I've had whatever I've had it throughout my career of having races, just not, not go the way that you think they're going to and crashing and you know, whatever. And sometimes it's just, you, sometimes you brush it off and sometimes it's, it's as simple as that. But in a situation like this, where it is compounding a little bit, like that does affect the vibe that you've got just for yourself even. And Scott, you know, when you talk to him, we had him on the pod, you can tell that he takes his performances very seriously, you know, like he's, very. he, 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 it matters a lot to him. You could tell that there was, there was a little, a little bit of him, him talking about his year last year that you could tell that it was almost like his frustration with not being able to more consistently extract the speed and whatever was part of a compounding issue that he was, you know, you got, you got the sense that he felt like he was getting in his own way a little bit with the, and that's not, He's that's not himself. an abnormal, like that's a very, very normal thing to feel, particularly in these kinds of situations. And so I think the two, two, two solutions for that, particularly for people who I've been like that throughout my career. So I can speak to this, at least from my own just general perspective is kind of feeling into the when you do when you have crashed when you have made a mistake when you have done this feeling into that like digging into what what happened here like what being able to kind of forgive yourself for it but like really dig into what went on so that you can understand for yourself like how did that happen why did i do that how did i do that how did this go down at least at least being able to generate a degree of acceptance for what you did that that is that is that has resulted in you feeling this way about it uh is is one piece of it so we all say like learn from your mistakes but it's really like no you gotta you gotta really dig into it and and get to a degree of depth even if you don't want to even if that's feels like maybe that would maybe that'll just make me feel shittier about this it actually it helps a lot in the long run to just understand for yourself, what, what your attitude was, what your perspective was, what your strategy was, what your decision-making process was like and how that resulted in something that didn't, didn't go the way that you wanted for it to go. The other piece of it, honestly, man, is like taking a page out of Will Power's book. Like what we heard from him, what we've been hearing him talk about in terms of just kind of being a little more in the moment and not, not caring, not caring. It's such a weird thing to hear an athlete say that, but it's a hundred percent how you extract the maximum performance out of yourself. And it's not, it's like people hear that and they're like, Oh, he just doesn't care. Like he doesn't care. He like, is, does his, is, are his crew guys hearing that being like, what the hell? My guy just doesn't care anymore. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's none of that. Like it's, it's differentiating between having an extraordinarily strong intention for why you're there, why you're doing it, what you're there to do. Like if you have that to start with, that is the caring thing that people are talking. That's, that's what like, that's the, the, the give a shit factor is that intention that you set for yourself. Like I'm here to do this thing at the racetrack today. Like we are going to go to the front. This is what we're here to do. Um, we are here to extract maximum performance every time we're on track. Once you have that, it's possible, but requires a lot of trust in yourself, in the people that you have around you, all of that, all of that stuff, not just your crew, your crew, but like literally everybody that's around you in your circle to then let go of the care about how it actually ends up. You know, Will, Will said the thing that it took me a long time. Like this is something that I've spent a lot of time just in the last like three or four years working on after I was full time last in 2017. Like I ended that season and was not in a good place and wasn't enjoying it and was not having fun. And like, there's nothing about it that was that I, that was like making me want to do it again, basically. And, and I, I got to a point that I was like, that's, totally screwed up like i should not be like i'm getting to go drive race cars for a living like that's not that should not be how i feel about this and had a had a bit of my own like come to jesus moment uh as a as a race car driver as a professional as as i think lots of people do throughout their careers doing lots of different stuff but 
ours happens to be one that's that's very like you know black and white literally we got checkered flags at the end of it so you you know you see that at the end of the race and and that can start to affect how you think about it that um it, what i guess the without continuing to ramble on about this the thing that that will said in his post race interview that that i really connected with was that he's he's just judging himself on his personal performance like how did i feel not not even just like how did i do in the car in terms of my lap time lap to lap what he's talking about is judging his personal ability to be in the right in in what he feels is his best mental state to extract the maximum performance that he's able to 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 generate lap to lap elio has been somebody that like if you if you were able to get Elio to sit down and really talk to you about this, he would explain. I think a lot of the same things over the years. Everybody, uh, uh, every great driver would. But um, for Will to say that, it was it was very like, oh, now I now I now I'm a believer. Like we've seen these good results throughout the course of the year. We've seen a resiliency and kind of a, a robust a more robust willpower in terms of being able to like get through an event and have it not be going perfect and still end up in the top five or still end up on a podium. Um, which is, you know, he's been a little bit more like his, he's been more at his, at the extremes over the last couple of years. Like either it's all going great and he sticks it on the pole and he wins or it's not. And he's not somebody that we're really talking about at the end of the event. Um, and so I think wrapping back around to Scott. I think that that's, that's something that to me feels like I'm sure, I'm sure Scott McLaughlin is already thinking about that. I'm sure he already does that, but going that step further or, or really focusing on that aspect of, of just how this actually works and what actually does make this enjoyable and what makes it fun and what, what what is at the end of the day as a driver the thing that's most responsible for you having good results is just being in that optimized state that um you know for for scott if he can if he can just get back to there and be get back to focusing on that then none of this is going to matter i think the only other thing I, i didn't mention um talking about him and you know what he's what he's been through in his journey to this point is that he also races with penske which could, could not be an easy thing when something like this happens when you're a rookie because he knows he's as a driver he knows he's got the ability of his teammates or or is at least in the same league as his teammates and deserves to be there just from a pure driving aspect but he's obviously so far behind on the experience side of things that when these things start to happen it's just another kind of um prob- probably another knock on his confidence that he's not performing to the same level as as his teammates even though he probably shouldn't be at this point. He's already he's already overachieving, in my opinion, for, for where he should be. But for, for someone like Scott McLaughlin, who's a three-time Supercars champion, that's not going to be good enough. And it's probably stacking up on top of him in, in that sense as well. So uh, I think that's an, an under-discussed element of his sort of lack of experience is the fact that he's also racing for the, arguably the biggest team in the championship that basically when you walk through the door, you're expected to win something. So it's that that is another aspect of how this is you know going to be a difficult experience for him uh let's we haven't got much time left jr so let's just wrap up quickly i wanted to mention felix rosenquist's weekend because uh, i think that was probably one of the drives of the of the race in the end um obviously had the the the, the trouble in qualifying where well he had a crash first didn't he and the first practice he, he crashed and held up his hands and said that was his mistake and that was i think 24 hours after uh, McLaren team president Taylor Kyle had said that he was doing enough to keep his seat and then he went and crashed in the first practice so so that didn't look great um, and then I think from from what I kind of gather a, a mistake from the team and not giving Felix communication which led to him holding up Jimmy Johnson in, in qualifying so he had to start from the back of the grid but executed that three-stop strategy really well and I guess by mid-race he was already um, you know a, a lot like Rossi I guess was already in contention for that top 10 um, and then quite a you know, I don't want to say funny moment because that makes it sound like it's it's, it's tongue in cheek, but a coincidental moment of Reedus VK crashing on the on the last lap. Um, you know, gifting Felix that top ten, and obviously Reedus is one of the people who's been discussed as potentially 
taken over Felix's seat along with the rest of the paddock this week, which was a, a weird kind of, from what I can gather, uh, a tweet from Tony Kanaan saying that you'll never guess who's going to be in the third McLaren car turned into Alex Pillow being connected to the seat and then like a load of other people being connected to it too, which was which was really bizarre. But let's, let's, uh, let's do this quickly, JR. I think for me, Felix has earned another year just off his performances in the first half of this season because... I think last year the car was, it was clear to see the car was one of the most difficult to drive in the paddock. And I think he deserves at least another full season of being able to to try and put everything together. Where are you at with Felix? Are you hopeful he'll keep his seat? And I guess, do you think he will? I am hopeful that he keeps his seat. I, I don't, I don't, I don't have any, I, I just don't have a good feel for the decision-making process for any of this stuff at, at Arrow McLaren. So I, I have no, I, I don't have any further info certainly or insight into like what's going on there. And, uh, I guess, I guess if I'm, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me to see them go after to pay it to way overpay or something or, 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 oh, I don't know, overpays. I, I hesitate ever to use that term, but just Break the bank. pay somebody a lot more than they're getting paid to be at Ganassi or to be at, I mean, Scott Dixon to Aero McLaren is not like a totally insane, like that's not something that for sure isn't going to happen. <laughs> as absurd as that sounds, like it's just, it's just not. Um, yeah. Or, or for them to bring, bring a European guy over and, and fill the seat because, because of this or that reason, like, I don't know. So I, I guess I would say, I don't, I don't feel I would like to see Felix get another year and get another. I think he's done a He's done a great job. He's been overshadowed by Pato, unfortunately, for like the entire season. But whenever Pato has been good, Felix has been right there. So I don't I think like that he's closed that gap enormously. Um, I just don't it's just not a situation that I look at from the outside with a high degree of confidence necessarily that it's like done and dusted. And he's soul he's solid for next year like i think he could he could have like a couple of bad races and the whole narrative would completely change like it seems it seems volatile from that point of view yeah for sure i guess the only other thing to do is mention santino frucci because we didn't on our indy 500 podcast and we were called out on twitter for that so apologies for not mentioning santino's uh well we got uh, called out by his engineer from the 500 so well yeah yeah i was gonna get to that um <laughs> which, which is which which is Fine. Charlie Bing, what's up? Yeah. Listener yeah. of the pod, appreciate it. Get great, dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and rightfully so. Uh, I'm not saying it tongue in cheek. Rightfully so, uh, calling us out for for not mentioning Santino. I, I guess the problem is we've only got an hour for these podcasts, and sometimes we have to make a a bit of a decision on uh, the topics that we cover. But I guess that was interesting in the sense that it was Santino's first run with with dry and round ball racing in the in the 500. I, I guess the reason why. It probably didn't stand out as much for me is because it didn't feel like one of those. I think maybe in this sense, uh, Santino has been a victim of his usual kind of drive from like 800th on the grid to the top five. Um, and then, and he basically not far off finished where, where like a few places above where he'd started. So maybe it felt less like Hollywood movie script than what we're probably used to with Santino. <laughs> but I still think, um, you know, and you'll be able to talk about that team you know, in a lot more detail than than I can. But obviously, last year they went back to one car and have expanded again to to two and did a, a good job with with Santino. Um, and and I guess Sage was running well up until the the point of his crash late in, late in the race. Um, but but good to see an Indy only team basically, um, you know, putting themselves in good positions. And I think Santino is an ideal driver for for them to be honest, um, especially when you kind of link him. I know he's done such a good job with with all the teams that he subbed in for and again, subbed in this weekend in place of Callum Eilat, who had a, um, has, has had wrist trouble since the Indy, Indy 500. So Santino was in with, with Huncos at the weekend. Um, he's done such a good job in, in various, uh, sub appearances, hasn't he Santino? And, um, it, it was nice for him to get a deal where he knew what he was doing for months in advance and was able to really work towards that, uh, that 500 attempt and, and really get that done. So that was good to see. Anything else from Detroit JR before we wrap up? I guess we should actually, I should ask you about Road America because we've got, we've got this usual situation where we're back to back to back to back in, in terms of the calendar. So um, 
I think this is probably going to be a carbon copy of, of last year when I asked you about it last year, but I guess just give me some thoughts on Road America. It's such for, from a, from a European point of view, you know, we grow up looking at Road America as like the best street circuit in, in America, or at least one of them. Um, and, and I guess it's, it's right up there for you guys as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Road race, road course. Yeah. The, um, I guess I, yeah, I look at last year, I look at how last year went, you had Colton, Newgarden, Polo. I, I think there's, it's a, it's a place where a lot of teams can be really strong and, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. There's a, it always feels like there's like a threat of rain at road America over the summer. So that's an interesting one to play out. It's actually a really fun track in the rain because the stakes are super high and but it's a place that a lot of us have driven in the rain before so it's it's just it's fun that way um I, yeah i don't i don't have any real expectation i think like we talked about earlier in the year or earlier in the pod seeing where the 27 car ends up is going to be among the most interesting storylines this weekend coming off of an awesome weekend here at a place where they've been particularly strong when he won that race in 2019 like they just dusted everybody so it'll be interesting to see if we can see if if that type of appearance shows back up, Rosenquist was really good there, uh, in you know last year I think right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before and he won, didn't so he? The, or twenty nineteen, yeah. he won right, or twenty twenty, twenty twenty. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But I think I felt like as the as his kind of standout performance thus far in the Aero McLaren machine. Um, so a lot of drivers that you could, it's kind of a pick them among those top those top guys, Dixon and Rosenquist there in in, in twenty twenty and. The Andretti cars have been strong. Joseph was that Joseph was right there. So, uh, yeah, just a, a great a great circuit. I mean, it's it was to your point about looking at it from your from the European perspective. I'll still I still remember. I can't remember what year it was, but Lewis like tweeted or uh, on his Instagram stories. Obviously, just caught some of. I don't know if it was it was qualifying or something. I don't think it was. The, I don't even think it was the race, but posted about like. This is a proper, you know, there's just like grass and lousy curbs and, you know, a bunch of stuff to hit really easily without going that far off the track, basically <laughs> like high consequences for making mistakes on a proper road course. So it's, it's all of those things wrapped into one and, and somewhere that I think IndyCar is IndyCar and particularly the teams and drivers. Cause a lot of the crew members and engineers and stuff have been, I mean, they've been running cars there since way before IndyCar went back to road america i mean this is just a place that if you've been a part of open wheel racing certainly but just motorsports in the united states elkhart lake is just a it's a staple of your motorsport career like you always go there you're there and everything races there at some point during the year uh, it was a huge huge weekend for champ car prior to kind of folding into indycar uh and and everybody's definitely excited to to have it be a hallmark of the schedule in the middle of the summer every year now. It was 2017 when Hamilton was talking about Road America, I remember, because um, it was not long after Alonso had done the 500 and it was kind of around that time where it seemed like there was a bit of interest built in, in F1 towards that as well. I guess should um, clarify when we were talking about Felix Rosenquist, uh, it was it was obviously with Ganassi in 2020 when he won and then he missed last year's race because it was the race after he had the... It was the race after the huge crash in Detroit where he was obviously yeah, out yeah. for the for the following race. So, uh, but yeah, so went so well there for for Ganassi and yeah in in 2020 and yeah he was also I think top six there in his first season his rookie year as well. So I think historically it has been a track that Felix has has been really good at. So it'd be interesting to see how he gets on there. So that's it for this week's The Race IndyCar podcast. We'll be back next Monday with an episode looking at everything from Road America. The Athletic.